Bear with me. I'll be one-handed today. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis 12, uh, Genesis 12 1 to 3. My wife and son are laughing at me. I usually talk with both hands, so maybe I'll be quieter today. <laughs> I'm going to be looking at uh, just three verses in the beginning of Genesis today as we think about, uh, as we celebrate the Christmas season. I want to begin just with sharing a story uh, those of you who've heard this before, forgive me. I've been here so long that I'm like, I need more stories or something, but uh, some of you may remember this. But I grew up with three brothers. Uh, there was a considerable amount of, of both rough housing and sports over the course of my growing up years, and we played a lot of baseball, particularly. And over the years, uh, more than a couple times, I took a, you know, a line drive or a bad bounce off the nose. I guess I broke my nose several times, never did anything about it at the time. It wasn't really an issue. I didn't think about it. But when I was in my, probably around 20, I was having a lot of trouble breathing. And so I saw a doctor. He sent me to a surgeon, and the surgeon recommended uh, fixing uh, what was called a deviated septum. I guess the, the inside of my nose, the bone and the cartilage kind of had a few switchbacks that weren't supposed to be there. So they proposed breaking it, setting it straight so that I could breathe properly. So I thought, sure, uh, I guess that would be a good idea so I can breathe properly again. So I had that surgery, and I came out of that surgery feeling more congested than I had ever felt in my life because they, they do this and there's some bleeding, so they pack your nostrils, and I discovered your sinuses with gauze to hold everything straight while it sets and heals. And so for that week, I was a complete mouth breather. <sighs> like, just could not breathe at all, more congested than I ever felt in my life. Went back to see the surgeon following this. Sorry, I hope no one... Oh, yeah, we, we've compared stories. Um, I went back to the surgeon afterwards for a follow-up and, you know, some questions, whatever the normal stuff, and then he prepared to take the, the gauze out of my nostrils. And I remember probably the, the biggest understatement I've ever heard personally. He said, just before he began pulling, he said, this is going to be a little bit uncomfortable. And he took a plier and he grabbed it from my one nostril and began pulling. And honestly, he was on the other side of the room yanking. At least 10 feet of gauze came out. It felt like my brain was coming to my head. I'd never felt anything like that before. And then, then he had to do the second one. And what I discovered in that experience in that doctor's office is that my sinuses are way bigger than I ever imagined. Like, we have giant cavernous spots in our head with nothing there. I know I'm setting myself up for a joke, but incredibly how big your sinuses are, how much gauze they'd packed into my head. It was, it was so much bigger than I ever could have fathomed. I share that story with you this morning because this morning I, I, I want to help each of us see that the Christmas story is way bigger than we often imagine. It's not just a story about Mary and Joseph, about shepherds and wise men in a stable and a manger, uh, angels and a star. It's, it's not even just about the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, God taking on flesh, which is enormous in and of itself. The Christmas story is even bigger. The Christmas story is the unfolding story of God's redemptive activity in this world, of God's redeeming work of his ruined creation through the centuries, around the planet, and through the years. 
It, it is not a story limited to the small Galilean town of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. It is a story that is so much bigger, and it's a story that invites each one of us into it, offering us a great and glorious gift and inviting us each to play an exciting and privileged role. In a moment, I'm going to read from Genesis 12, a story that we encounter early on in the pages of Scripture. And it's a story of the, the call of a man named Abram, a man who will become a father of a son and a, a family and a nation. If you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In the time that we have together, I want to speak to five things just real quickly. First is the backstory. Second, the call. Third, the promise. Fourth, the gift. And fifth, the invitation. The backstory, the call, the promise, the gift, and the invitation. So first, the backstory. I, I, I want to be a little bit ambitious over the next few minutes and, and share with you at least a version of a, the, 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 a brief history of the world. Uh, though we're picking things up here in Genesis 12 fairly early in the story, just 12 chapters into the biblical account, a lot has already transpired before we encounter Abram at the end of chapter 11 and into chapter 12. The biblical story tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's a way of saying, uh, in the beginning, God created everything. Everything that exists was created by God. God spoke the world, the cosmos, into existence. And throughout the creation account, we hear over and over and over again the refrain, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. Until finally the refrain changes, and, and God says, and it was very good. And he says that after he creates humanity, as he creates men and women, people. We read on and we witness, tragically, the rejection of God's rightful authority the, the authority of God by Adam and Eve. Uh, the scriptures tell us that God placed a man and a woman in a garden, a, a place that was lush and, and fruitful. There were, there were all manner of trees bearing fruit, and God gave them all to the man and the woman, to Adam and Eve, except for one. One tree he put there, he said, you shall not eat from this tree. And, and I would contend that that's less a test for, for Adam and Eve and more just a simple a sign that their authority, they, they were given authority in creation. God said, have dominion over the earth, rule it, care for it. They served as God's uh, regents, God's ambassadors in his creation. They, they had authority, but their authority was derivative. It was not ultimate. And so this one tree, God said, do not eat from this tree, was a sign, a, a remembrance of the fact that their authority came from God, that, that their authority was not ultimate. But the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve believed a lie. They believed the lie that God was not good, that God was trying to keep them from what was really good. And so they rejected his authority. They ate from that tree, and humanity was plunged into, into darkness.
their act of disobedience, of rebellion, uh, plunged the earth into darkness, into ruin. No longer were things the way God had intended them to be. No longer were things the way God created them to be. The relationship between humanity and God was severed. And not only that, it's not just that our relationship with God was broken, but now uh, our relationship horizontally with other human beings was broken, characterized by blame and hostility and power struggles. Even humanity's relationship with God's good creation was now cursed. Uh, now, Now the earth would produce thorns and thistles. Work would be toilsome and childbearing painful. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. And we read on in the biblical account and Very shortly thereafter, their son Cain murders his own brother in anger and jealousy. And we read the story and we see humanity's story in this good creation spiraling deeper and deeper into brokenness, into darkness, wickedness and rebellion against the Creator. But by the time we get to Genesis chapter 12 and Abram, there has been no improvement in the situation Humanity remains estranged from God. Humanity is living in rebellion against God and hostility towards one another. The world is characterized by violence and disobedience. And so, fast forward from that day to today. Scan through the centuries. And what do we see? We see that same story replayed over and over and over again in countless ways. Brokenness, estrangement, hostility, pain, and death. One scholar, Cornelius Plantinga, has written a book about the reality of the world we live in, in the current state in which it is. And he's brilliantly captured uh, this truth with the title of that book. He, he, he entitled the book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. We live in a world that is not the way it's supposed to be because of sin, because of our rebellion, because of our broken relationship with God. Creation has been ruined, it's been marred, it is broken, it is in darkness. And the reality is, regardless of what you believe, whether you are a Christian or not, whether you hold to another set of religious beliefs or another set of philosophical beliefs, whatever your worldview, intuitively we all know this. We know that something in this world is not right. You stand at the graveside of a loved one and you know this. This creation is broken. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. That's point one. The backstory. Second, the call. As we enter into the story in Genesis 12, in these verses that I read a few moment, we, moments ago, we are entering into a story that, that is unfolding in this broken world. And I want to note something that might seem obvious, but we risk missing it. And that is this, this fact, that God, the Creator, God who spoke the cosmos, the world, into existence has not abandoned creation. He is present. He is engaged in his world despite the rebellion and disobedience of humanity. Despite the brokenness and darkness of his creation, he's not abandoned it. God, he is present and engaged. And I want to highlight for you God's activity as he steps in to unfold his grand plan of restoration, restoring what was broken, of redeeming what is lost. Let me read again at verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. God is engaged. God is present. God calls Abram. 
And as we'll see in the story as it unfolds in the following chapters of Genesis, God will use this man and work through him to accomplish his plan of restoration, of restoring his ruined creation. But what... But I want you to know something that might not be immediately obvious, and that is that God does not choose Abram because of Abram's goodness. He he doesn't choose Abram because of uh, Abram's goodness. There's there's evidence, in fact, if you look at the end of chapter 11, where we first encounter Abram and his family, his father Terah, his, his brothers, there's good evidence to suggest that Abram and his family were actually involved in pagan worship. They didn't they didn't know Yahweh. They didn't know the God of the Bible. Uh, both the places Ur and Haran, where his family f- came from and where they settled along the way, were places known for, uh, for lunar worship. Not only that, but it, the, wife, the name of Abram's wife and his sister-in-law, Milcah and Sarai, those, those names uh, are, are come out of that, that context. They have associations with lunar worship. And so, Chances are that Terah and his family, Abram, came from a family that worshipped the moon, did not know Yahweh, but God called him, not because of Abram's goodness, not because of Abram's faithfulness, but because of God's grace and God's desire to work, he chooses this man. And so he calls him to leave his home and his family and go where he, would, where he will call him, where he will send him. The call of Abram in many ways points ahead and is similar to Christ's call to his disciples. Come, follow me. That's essentially what God's doing here. Abram, come, follow me to where I will show you. That's the call, the call to, to a life of following wherever God would lead. And God's call is a result of God's grace. God's gracious desire, God's gracious intention to restore to redeem his fallen and ruined creation. Let's look now to the promise of God. I'm going to read verses 2 and 3 again here. God speaks to Abram after he's called him, and he says this, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What I want us to see, what I want us to see is that God's call of Abram is not just about Abram. It's not just about Abram's family. It's not just about the nation that will come from Abram. God's purpose is to bless all the peoples on the earth. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. God's desire, God's purpose, God's aim is the blessing of all peoples. It's the restoration of all that is ruined. It is the the redemption of all that are lost. It's to that end that God makes this promise, that God chooses this man, Abram. And Abram will, by an act of God's grace, an act of God's mercy, Abram will become miraculously the father of a son and eventually a nation. A nation called to this special role in God's redemptive plan, uh, that through them, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. That is God's desire, His aim. And that is the role that God's people are called to play in 
in the rest of the biblical stories, we read this. They are, they are to be agents of blessing to the world. That through them, others would come to see the power and the majesty of God. That through them, others would come to see the holiness and the goodness and the generosity of God. That through them, others would come to know the love and the compassion and the gentleness of God. That through them, others would experience the mercy and grace and salvation of God. That is God's desire for his people. That through Abram and his descendants, the people of God, the world would come to know God, come in to be restored to right relationship with God. New Testament scholar, and biblical scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way, Israel was to serve as cosmic first responders. I love that. That's the role of God's people throughout the biblical story to serve as, as cosmic first responders, that through them others would be restored to right relationship with God, that through them the witness of their life, the testimony of their lives, others would be restored, that God's redemptive work would be accomplished. And as we make our way through the biblical story, we see moments of faithfulness to this call where they, they live out this mission in Second Kings through the the, the ministry of Elisha, we see the, uh, Naaman, the commander of the armies of Aram, come to faith in Yahweh and, and worshiping the God of Israel. Through the testimony of, of Daniel's life in far off Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes to faith in Yahweh to worship the God of Israel. Through the life of Jonah, even through his disobedience, his unfaithfulness, the sailors on that ship come to, to praise God. God of Israel. But often we see God's people failing. Failing to recognize the call. Failing to live out that mission. And instead living very inward focused, insular lives. The, the Old Testament prophets regularly, among other things, called Israel to love the foreigner. To love those who were not part of their nation. And yet by the time we get to Jesus, the New Testament Gospels, there's a, a palpable animosity towards those who are not part of Israel. And Israel's living this insular life looking inwardly. About, it's about them, and they just damn the nations, damn Rome. We, 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 this is about us. They've lost sight of God's mission, God's plan, God's intention. But what we need to see is that the biblical story of redemption has always been bigger than Abram and Israel. God's desire, his purpose was to bless all the peoples of the earth. It was to restore all that's been broken, to redeem rebellious humanity. Which brings us to our fourth point this morning, the gift of Christ. As we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation that in the birth of Jesus, God came to live with us. That God became present. God put on human flesh. Emmanuel, that's what it means. Emmanuel means God with us, in, coming, in the coming of Christ. God has come to be with us. More than that, he's not come simply to be with us. He's come to bring, to accomplish our salvation, to achieve for us forgiveness for our sin. We, we all, the Bible says, we've all gone astray. We've all sinned. We all stand guilty before our maker, and we are unable to fix what's broken. In Luke's gospel, before Christ is born, we read a, another story, a story about a, a, an old man named Zechariah, a priest. Zechariah was serving in the temple. He was in the holy place, standing before the altar of incense, serving when suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to his right. 
the angel Gabriel. A little, a little background information. Zechariah and his wife, now an old, older couple, were childless. They'd never been able to conceive, never been blessed with a child. For years, they had longed for a child. For years, they had dreamed of a day when they would hold a child in their arms, a child that was theirs. They, they had prayed. But by this time, they'd stopped dreaming. They'd stopped praying. The days of childbearing were well behind Elizabeth. They had given up that hope, that dream. And on this day, Zechariah is standing in the holy place in the temple, burning incense before the Lord. And, and the angel Gabriel shows up, and, and, and Gabriel says to him, Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You're going to be a father. And Zechariah does not believe. He, he, he does not believe. He does not believe what this angel of the Lord says. And as a consequence of his lack of faith, of his sin of unbelief, God strikes him dumb, mute, unable to speak for the duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy. For nine painful months, not able to share what he's thinking with his wife as he sees her pregnant and growing large with child. And even after his son was born, for the first eight days, Zechariah still could not speak. He could not feel the name of his son on his lips. He could not verbally express his joy and delight. And then God, who had closed his mouth, opened it again. Marshall Siegel writes this, If a man has been silent for nearly a year, when he finally does speak, everyone leans in to listen. So when his prodigal tongue returned, what did Zechariah say? Here, here's what he said. Here's part of what he said in Luke 176. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Tears must have flowed. As Zechariah held his son, John, John, the forebearer of Jesus, John, the one who would announce the coming of Christ, God incarnate, Emmanuel. As he held him, as he held John, he said, God forgives. God forgives, really, he forgives sinners. He forgives sinners like me, John. Now your role be, will be to go and proclaim that, that forgiveness is possible because God has come to be present with us. Emmanuel has come, God with us. John, proclaim that hope. And one day the one whose coming Zechariah's son would announce, Jesus whose birth we celebrate. Jesus, God in human flesh. One day he would be arrested on false charges. He would be tried and convicted because of jealousy. He would be convicted out of spite. And he would be crucified on a cross. Even as we celebrate Christmas, the cross stands in the background. Perhaps I should say the foreground. Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sin, to, to bring us forgiveness, to, to fix what you and I could never fix ourselves by paying the penalty for our sin, that he died the death that you and I deserve, so that through faith 
in Him, we might be forgiven. Not only that, but clothed with His perfect obedience. Redeemed. Restored. What was ruined through sin back in Genesis, restored in Christ. Brought into fellowship with our Maker, that relationship with God that was severed can be restored. And and God can begin His transforming work in us, shaping us to be the men and the women that He called us to be. Learning to live as His kingdom people. This is what we've been talking about through the Sermon on the Mount, that the Sermon on the Mount is, is not prescriptive saying this is what you have to do in order to be God's people, but descriptive. This is who you are becoming because you believe the good news that in Christ you are forgiven, that in Christ you are adopted, in Christ you've been made alive. So live out that reality. That's what we are growing into, that we would increasingly be living the life the way it's supposed to be, living the life that we were created to live. That is so that we can live as agents of blessing, that we can live as God's people, as cosmic first responders in this broken, dark world, pointing others to the one in whom we found a hope. That leads us fifthly to the invitation. The Christian faith is about the forgiveness of sin through the death of Christ on the cross the one whose birth we celebrate in this season. But it is about more than that. It is about the restoration of God's ruined creation. The restoration begins with forgiveness. The restoration begins with reconciliation to God. It begins with us being restored to right relationship with Him, brought into that fellowship, but it doesn't end there. No, God's goal, His aim is to bless all the peoples of the earth. And you and I, those who repent and believe, are privileged to be called into a role as cosmic first responders, to live as agents of God's blessing in all the earth. We are redeemed. We are adopted. We are part of His people. And now we live as agents of blessing, as a source of goodness, as a force for justice, a fount of compassion and love that we live. The church is to be, is to live as a community of broken, sinful people who have encountered the forgiveness and restoration of God in Christ, a community of men and women being healed and restored into those God created us to be, a a community of people being transformed by the good news and the power of the, the Spirit of God living in us. We live as an outpost of heaven, as we we live the lives of the future, lives of restoration. We live that life out before a watching world, inviting them to come and find life, to experience restoration, redemption, as we have through Christ. And each of us who are in Christ are invited into that. And if you have never repented and believed, Christ is calling you right now. Scripture says, Jesus says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We're called to to repent. That is to acknowledge our sin, to acknowledge that we have lived as though we are in charge, as if we are the ultimate authority when it comes to our life. We sin in the same way that Adam and Eve did back in the garden. And repentance is turning from that and saying, God, you, you are king. You are my maker. You are my ultimate authority. And bowing before him and trusting him, trusting in Jesus, trusting in his death on the cross for us, that through him we are forgiven, through him we are clothed with his righteousness, brought in to right relationship, restored. And so if you are not a believer this morning, you you can repent and believe right now. 
And for those who are, I want you to see the glory of the role that we're called to, living as God's people in this world, agents of blessing, part of God's purpose in restoration and redemption and reconciliation. I began this morning by sharing a bit of a silly, maybe gross story about how big I discovered sinuses are in general, or mine in particular. It is my hope that this morning as we've explored God's call on Abraham that we have seen a little bit more clearly how big the Christmas story is. That it's far bigger than just the events that happen in Bethlehem. It is, it is a story of God's rest- restorative work in his ruined creation. It, we celebrate a much larger story. A story of God's desire to bless a story of God's desire to, to pour out his love and his grace and his mercy and to redeem. God acting in history. God entering into history. Doing what we could never do for ourselves so that we might experience his blessing. And that we might live as agents of blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. Father, we thank you that your desire is to bless. And I pray, Jesus, that you would open our eyes to see the bigness of what Christmas is at the heart of, that you have come into the world to redeem, to reconcile. Would you move in our hearts, Lord Jesus, that we might be filled with joy in you and that we might faithfully live as your redeemed people for your purposes of blessing the world. In your name we pray, amen.